Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Friday, September 9th, and this is episode 741. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it's time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Now, don't pick the call, the phone up, and dial right now. You're listening to a recording. If you do it right now, you're not going to get me. You're going to get a message system, and you're going to leave a message, and I'll answer your call probably in the next month or two with as many calls as I have in backlog now. Uh, but I will try to get to your call. I, one day I need to sit down and do like a week of just these shows. The reality, though, for those of you that think like, well, Jack cheats on Friday, he just does a listener call show. Um, these shows are actually a lot harder to do. There's a lot more work. They t- take twice as long to produce as a show with a guest or a show with a standalone. So it is a lot of work to produce these shows, but I think it's worth it because this show is supposed to be about you, the audience, and if we don't hear from you directly, then how is that the case? So that's why I love doing these shows. And that's why I think it's worth the extra effort, and that's why shows get published later on Fridays on average, if you were ever wondering. Before we take your calls, though, again, if you want to make a call like this, 866-65-THINK, because we encourage you to think here. Uh, before we take those calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors and do some housekeeping. i got some important stuff in housekeeping today beyond the typical stuff, so do not fast forward today. Trust me. First up, let's take care of those sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one, MERS Radio. That's actually M-U-R-S with a hyphen, a dash. And then the word radio.com. Uh, Rob there is an expert because he only carries a small assortment of equipment, and that means that anything you want to do, he'll say, this is how you do it, or this won't do it for you, and you don't waste your time. If you call him before you order, you're going to order exactly what you need. You're going to get ex- excellent service, and it's going to work for you, and you're going to know what to do with it when you get it. I mean, I think that's so important. Now, what is MERS? It's a combination of a secondary communications uh, technology. It does not require a license for use like HAM or something like that, but it's got limited range. Let's say a mile or two depending on terrain. But it also incorporates security with motion detectors. So you can have a base station in your house, handhelds when people go out, and then you have these motion detectors out there. And if somebody's like trying to get in your woodshed and you've made that sector one, you could have actually multiple motion detectors on all sides of it and set them all to be sector one. And if anybody's over there or anything's over there, you'll hear alert sector one and you can check into it. Now if you combine that with wireless security cameras, you've really got something uh, beyond the cameras because the cameras you have to be watching. So you have an audio alert. He doesn't do the cameras. It's just the suggestion, but it's really cool. Check out MERS Radio today. Give Rob a call if you need help deciding what you need, and give Rob a call if you're not sure this is right for you. He's not going to misdirect you. He's not going to lie. If this is not what you really need, he's going to say, this is not going to do what you want, and that's why he's been a sponsor for so long, and that's why I'm happy to have him as a sponsor. Again, MERS-Radio.com is the domain. Best way to visit all our sponsors, go to our site first, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click their banner in the right-hand margin. Um, That will make sure you're dealing with the right company. These guys go through a really intense screening process. Now, the first one that went through that screening process,
process. The first one that had to stand up against 26 moderators on the forum who tore them apart with Better Business Bureau reviews, eBay reputation, anything they could find about them was Safe Castle. They're our other sponsor of the day today. They were the first sponsor of the show. They've been here the longest. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. And they're not just an awesome supplier of everything you could need for prepping and an awesome supplier of everything you can think of when it comes to hardened shelters. They are also an awesome uh, supporter of the show because they have a discount buyer's club. Big discounts on everything they sell, $29 for a lifetime membership. But if you're in the member support brigade, they give it to you for free. So check out Safe Castle uh, today. They're located at prepared.pro, prepared.pro. Or, again, best way, go to the website, click on their banner. Next up, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, the forum, and check out our gear shop. I'll just leave it at that today. Remember, if you want to support this show, you can do that. It's $0.20 cents an episode. And when you figure out the math, it's actually like 18.3 or 18.8 or something like that cents an episode to be in the member support brigade at $50 a year. And that gives you over $100 worth of free books. And that gives you discounts to 29 different MSB supporting vendors, including the $29 free membership from Safe Castle. And it gives you video content that's available nowhere else. And it gives you the right to display member support brigade affiliation if you are on our forum. And it gives you what else? Zip files of every edition of the Survival Podcast ever recorded going all the way back to episode one. I get people all the time, how can I get all of this stuff all at once? Well, you can go through individually and download them one at a time for free. Or if you're a member support brigade member, you get them all in convenient zip files. And uh, that makes it a really great program, well worth 50 bucks a year. Military law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, email me before you join. There's a special discount just for you. I do not reveal the amount until you do that. Tell me your name, you where you were served, what your job was, some basic information. I don't need a copy of your ID. I don't need a copy of your DD-214 or anything like that who you are, where you work, or where you worked, and we'll hook you up, because that's pretty much enough validation for me. Uh, last but not least, and this is the important couple of things that I want to make sure you get out in the housekeeping section today that are not typical housekeeping. One, remember, Ready Made Resources is giving away an AR-15 upper valued at $890 from Rock River Arms. This thing looks like it belongs on a Star Trek episode uh, rather than just uh, in, in, in your uh, gun cabinet. It is awesome. It is a high-dollar product. All you got to do is fill out a form. Make sure you enter to win the AR-15 upper from Ready Made Resources. Next up, another contest today that does some real good. It's not being run by me. I'm just making you aware of it. EC Knives is, uh, and they make a great little neck knife. I'm wearing one right now while uh, my other neck knife goes back to Patrick for final polishing and sharpening, uh, the one with the mammoth tusk. I'm wearing the, the SE um, Azula knife. Uh, they're giving away one of those. They're giving away a one-of-a-kind buck knife um, from from the Hoods. And this whole thing is for uh, Karen and Jesse Hood, who, of course, lost uh, Ron Hood. And the whole community lost Ron Hood. Ron the Woodmaster Hood, uh, one of my best friends and brothers. Essie is doing this uh, this giveaway, and the tickets are 5 bucks a piece. And they have a whole list of prizes. I'll link to it today. Please consider um, buying a ticket or three. You know, I bought five. That's 25 bucks, and if I win a knife, great. If I win with something, I'm probably, unless it's that, that one-of-a-kind buck, which it would be great to carry that for the rest of my life to remember Ron with. Anything else I win, I'm probably going to give it away to you guys anyway. Uh, but I just believe that the man gave so much to the prepper and survival community uh, that now that he's gone, we should give a little bit back to Karen and Jesse, who are carrying on the work that Ron laid down over the years and continuing with their magazine, their forum, their website, and everything else. And if we can help with that, and if we can help uh, Jesse in his future, whether he chooses to go to college or educate himself some other 
other way, let's do that as well. Five bucks isn't much. All right. With that, let's go ahead and take your first call uh, for today's show. Hey, Jack. This is Tom in Missouri. I've been thinking about starting a new website slash blog, and I wanted to get your opinion on a couple things. First off, is there any certain domain registry sites that you recommend or, or who you've worked with or who's worked well for you? And also, what factors should I consider when determining a web domain name? Just want to make sure I haven't overlooked anything and, and, uh, want to make sure it's something that's, that's gonna have broad appeal. So, uh, your help would be greatly appreciated. Thanks a lot. Love the podcast. Bye. Well, it's, it's probably time for another episode on starting a business and uh, starting a website and blogging and all kinds of other things. But on your basic question about domain names, um, I think it's actually one of the things that's way overthought. Um, you know, people like worry about like does somebody else have a domain that's similar or whatever, and are they going to brand, brand pirate me? And trust me, till you have a brand, uh, you don't know what brand piracy is. Just because somebody else says the same thing as you, it doesn't matter until you actually have something of value and somebody starts to take away with it by using an imitation of your brand. Uh, and that's going to happen if you're successful. So I wouldn't even worry about it. As far as broad appeal, um, let me explain something to you about a niche, right? A niche in a small town of, let's say, 30,000, 40,000 people is a tire shop. A niche online is a site about a very specific type of tire for a very specific type of vehicle. And no matter how narrowly defined your niche is, your audience is over a million people, and you need about 1,000 true fans to make a living for the rest of your life. All right, and there's a, an article on Technium called 1,000 True Fans. I really recommend you read it. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Also, um, I'm not going to go too deep into this question because I have some great resources for you. Uh, on the business podcast I did 30-odd episodes of called Five Minutes with Jack, uh, specifically the episodes I'd recommend you listen to are 3, 15, and 30. I will link to all of them today. Um, but I, I think that it's important to understand something about the whole domain and, and broad stroke thing. We want to appeal to everybody. If you try to appeal to everybody, you'll probably appeal to no one. Um, if you look at the Survival Podcast, my content is very, very broad, but my my domain name and the site's initial uh, look to somebody seems quite narrow. It's for survivalists. But if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know that you're going to learn about gardening, permaculture, lifestyle planning, business, finance, economics. But see, all of those things are survival-related. But they certainly, when you tell somebody the survival podcast, don't get that broad-spectrum approach. So I put it with the tagline, helping you live the life you, better, helping you live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And that makes it a lot more all-encompassing. So the domain name is not as important as anybody believes it is. If you're going to try to target a particular term like Survival Podcast, having a domain with Survival Podcast, then it's a great idea. If you can go shorter, if you could get a domain like if I could have gotten TSP.com, trust me, or TSPC.com, and all three and four letter domain names that exist for .com are gone. Um, I, I would have, but it was simply not possible. Uh, and it's not worth it to pay the people that own those things what, what they think it's worth. So there you go. On where to buy your domain name, I really don't care. 
I don't think it really matters. Lots of people use GoDaddy. I don't like them. But I don't like them because they're not reputable. I don't like them because they don't do a good job. I don't like them because of their price. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, their back-end controls I'm not real happy with. They're, they're clunky to me. Uh, I hold all of my domains with a company called um, uh, DomainsWithUs.com is the URL, and they're now owned by a company called Hosting Nation. I would never do business with them as a host, but they're okay for domain names. If you're a new person setting up a site, I cannot recommend HostGator highly enough for your hosting and your domain. You do it together when they set it up. You don't have to worry about configuring your domain because if you buy a hosting package with a domain there, they're going to do all that for you. So it's going to make your life a lot easier. The episodes I mentioned, uh, episode 30 is called .net.com.org and negative greed. I think it's very important for anybody re uh, setting up a new site to listen to that episode. Uh, the next episode, episode 15, two minutes to blogging with WordPress and Fantastico. It's basically not even an episode. It's more of a video. And it shows you step-by-step -step how to install WordPress on uh, any web host that uses cPanel. And it's like that fast. And uh, episode three is called Don't Be Cheap and Use WordPress. Where I'm going to tell you to stay away from .blogspot or .wordpress or .typepad or .tumblr or any of that shit and own your own domain and own your own hosting because it can be dirt cheap. For a blogger, you can go get the baby package at HostGator. It's like $450 or $495 a month. And if you won't invest that in your business, it's not a business. I'm sorry. If you cannot afford $10 for a domain name and $4 a month in hosting, you do not have a business. You have a hobby that will never make you any money. Build something you own. Own your domain. Own your intellectual property. Own your hosting. If you own your hosting and you decide, I want to move my site somewhere else, it's easy to do. You buy hosting somewhere else. You contact your new host. Say, here's the access information to my old site. Move it here. If you're on Blogspot, not quite so easy. And this crap where people use Blogger and Blogspot, but they use their own domain, it's still crap. Own your own site, own your own domain. Those are my thoughts. Uh, I would definitely recommend HostGator. Uh, I know some of you guys watched me have problems with HostGator. It wasn't their fault. It absolutely was not their fault. I grew beyond their ability to service me uh, in an affordable manner. You will not if you're doing a blog. Um, I had to get up into the terabytes. I was pulling five terabytes of data before the problem became evident. Um, so HostGator is a great host for uh, anything other than really big podcasts. Uh, and you, you could probably use, and I used them for almost three years, and they were great for three years. Uh, it is something you can outgrow, but I wouldn't worry about it early on, and I wouldn't go out and spend $300 a month on a dedicated server. If you need that kind of service, I'll tell you, I use right now is a company called 100terabytes.com, but if I didn't have some members of the forum helping me out technically, I would need a lot of help, uh, because they don't do everything for you the way that a, a smaller host does. So there's my answer on that. Make sure you check out 5 Minutes with Jack. Those who want to know when it's coming back, I don't know if it's ever coming back. Um, it was never designed to be a business. It was all these business questions coming in here. I decided to answer them there. I think if you listen to all the content on 5 Minutes with Jack and you actually freaking do it, you don't need more episodes. I might do some anyway someday, but the reality is most people that want more of something like that, they've listened to everything and they've done very little to nothing of what's been recommended. As a business mentor, this is me and this is you if you ever become one. When you have a, a somebody you're mentoring and you say, take these steps... And they go out and listen and say, that's all great, but they don't do any of it. They come back and ask for more. You say, no. Do what I've said first. I can't keep giving you information you're not going to act on. That's how I feel. And that's why I got out of consulting. And that's why I don't do business consulting, whether it's small business or large business anymore. Because I got tired of giving great advice, being paid for it, and then having the person not act on it. 
So if anybody ever sends me an email, I want more from Five Minutes with Jack, I always send them an email back and it says, please show me where you've done everything I've already recommended. And, and I never get a response from it. Just a thought. All right, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Chris from Denton, Texas. I really love the show, and I think I have a pretty good idea that may have already been done, but I just put I was just putting uh, space blankets up on my window to reduce the heating bills, and I noticed they're see-through. So if you ever needed sunglasses in a pinch, uh, just go into your bug-out bag, and you most likely have a space blanket, and they work pretty well. So thanks again, Jack. Love the show. It changed my life. Bye-bye. Well, it probably has been done before, but I've never heard of it, and it's a great idea, um, especially if you end up in a situation where you're out in kind of a white-out snow situation where the snow stopped but everything's white. It's very, very possible to get what's called snow blindness, and I've, I've known of several different ways to basically make sunglasses by using any type of material and putting a couple pinholes in there, and you can see them way better than you would think, and it does a lot to protect your eyes. But uh, space blanket sunglasses sounds like a, a great tip. Uh, using them in windows to block heat is probably a great idea because they're very good at that. I didn't really ever notice that light came through them fairly well. Uh, it makes sense because of as thin as they are. Um, so, hey, uh, maybe you got a couple different tips there. Uh, using them for one, blocking heat, and two, for making sunglasses. Thanks for the call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ben from Richmond, Virginia. I just wanted to let you know that uh, I was listening to your one podcast with Stuart Rose, the interview. And I uh, just had an interesting situation where I happened to show up at the church near my house that we're trying to get uh, the neighborhood uh, watch going. I ran into some guy who already had something running. It was uh, already associated with the VFW down the road and with the county. So while I was thinking of starting one up myself after listening to that uh, podcast, I was amazed to see that it was already in place. kind of represents the synergy that you talk about. Everything's always constantly happening and uh, relating to one another. Um, and then I just had one other question for you in regards to my garden. I'm working on some raised beds at home. I was wondering if you had any information on um, pollination for the garden. Uh, bees just don't seem to be very popular in our area, and I was thinking if there's any particular way or means to best bring bees. I was thinking of just tilling up certain areas of my yard, throwing down a bunch of random wildflower seeds, have them grow all summer long, all spring long, and just see if that will help bring in the uh, bees and the uh, hummingbird and such. Uh, anyway, you're doing a great job. I love the show, and uh, more power to you. Thanks a lot, Jack. Well, one, I think it's great that you found somebody that's already doing a neighborhood watch, and you can add your, your efforts to theirs and make it stronger. And I think that it's probably a great idea whenever you think about putting together any kind of a community-level organization to find out, is there anybody already doing it? And not, is there anybody already doing it? Because if somebody else is doing it, I don't want to do it. But it just makes sense. If somebody's got any momentum and you throw your momentum and your effort and your work and your passion to that, the two people can do more than one person, and hopefully it's a lot more than two. So I do think that if you're going to do any kind of um, a, a proper county-chartered militia, which I'm going to have Stuart Rhodes back on to talk specifically about uh, sometime next month, uh, a neighborhood watch or anything like that, community gardening, anything that you want to do to impact your community, see, is anybody else doing it? Or is anybody else doing something similar but not quite the same that would be interested in working with you to expand what they're doing? If you have manpower and you have credibility, you can go faster. So awesome. Uh, next up on the pollinators, uh, it is as simple as just planting a whole crap ton of things they like to pollinate. 
Um, some of the things that I've seen that really seem to bring a lot of insects are uh, like blue salvia sage. Uh, that seems to be one of the best. If you plant that stuff in the middle of a, a parking lot, 50 you know, 500 feet from any, any other greenery. It seems like bees will show up there. Um, sunflowers are great. Now, you know, you have the big mammoth sunflowers, and they are awesome. Um, but, you know, you maybe don't want to give up your garden space for those or, or what have you. But you can plant them along a fence. They're very, very hardy. They're really a desert plant. Their irrigation requirements are actually quite low. And you don't always have to plant the big mammoth ones. As long as you don't pot plant, you know, these hybrid pollenless um, uh, sunflowers, uh, your small black oil sunflowers, your different colors, so put those things everywhere. Uh, and as long as they get a reasonable amount of irrigation, uh, if you live in a place with a lot of rain, you probably don't need to water them at all. Uh, they're going to do just fine. And they'll grow, like if you have an area along your fence that's planted with grass, you take a screwdriver. And make a hole and don't even pull back any of your grass and put that seed in there and maybe water it just a little bit until it gets up to a couple inches tall and let it go. And uh, if your grass is making it through, it's going to make it through. It'll go right up the grass lactose mulch. Uh, so those are some simple things you can do. You can also look at attracting mason bees or even buying mason bees and establishing a mason bee colony. It's as simple as a piece of wood with a bunch of holes drilled in it. I'll provide you some resources information about that today. And those same things are often uh, inhabited by uh, various different uh, wasps. And some of them that I think the people that want mason bees find as being a pest to me are not a pest. Uh, I just learned this year that there's also a type of wasp called a mason wasp. And the ones that I have around my property are black with like a really bright white marking on their back. It's almost like a horizontal stripe about midway down. And they're cool little creatures, and they're very, very benign. Um, I've had them all over my basil all year long, and I can stick my hand right into the flowers of the basil, and they come and go, and they, they're not aggressive at all. They're nothing like red wasps or paper wasps with their attitude. I'm sure they'll sting, and I'm sure they'll hurt like hell, but you have to do something to really molest them to set them off. Um, they're, I, I found uh, red wasps to be very, very aggressive animals if they're even remotely disturbed uh, where I haven't seen that with this. So those are some other things you can do. Um, bringing in a hive would be great, but there is a beehive is work. It's not a ton of work, but it's work. You don't just sit it there and leave it to itself. It has to be cared for. Uh, you do get a yield of honey out of it, but if you establish something like mason bees, you really don't have to do anything. Uh, people do take them in, put them in the refrigerator, clean out the, the, the nests and what have you. But if you put a proper setup out there for them, you can pretty much leave them be. And uh, they'll take care of everything on their own. And you will get some other things using the nest. Well, make lots of nests. Um, because everything that's going to use that nest is also a pollinator. Realize that we have an obsession with bees. Uh, because they are a great pollinator, specifically honeybees. But uh, there's a lot of other pollinators. You mentioned hummingbirds, and they're great too. Um, any kind of a deep bell flower with good pollen and nectar is going to be great for them. Uh, anytime when you look and you see a flower that's got a really deep hole uh, back into it, that's going to be something great for hummingbirds. If you put up some hummingbird feeders, that's going to bring them around. Uh, most of them have bee guards so they don't attract yellow jackets, which can be a real problem if they don't. Um, but the, you know, you can do other like supplemental feeding to bring them in, and then they'll find the other stuff on their own. Uh, but mason bees and mason wasps are really, really easy. They take care of themselves and it's something that everybody should consider. And then realize, if you just plant enough flowers, you're going to also start to see all different types of little flies and things like that. Uh, except for house flies, most, and, and horse flies and deer flies, most flies are not pests. 
Most flies are actually beneficial. If you see these little iridescent colored flies and things like that, and there's fruit flies that are also a pest, but most of the other flies out there actually are very beneficial. And some of our plants are specifically pollinated by flies. So plant as much diversity in blossoming, flowering plants and herbs as you can, and pollinators will find you. Great call. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Jay from Oregon. I have a question about the uh, power optimization you can do on an electrical water heater. Is there anything similar we can do for those of us with gas water heaters? I can't really put a timer on it to turn off the gas, because then, of course, the power light goes out. Uh, that's all. Thanks. Bye. Now, I mean, on the surface to me, it would seem that there should be a way to create some type of a system uh, that, that basically tells your hot water heater only kick up the fire at certain times of day. Uh, it would relate to the thermostat that's doing that already. But I don't know and I've never tried it. What I will tell you is this. I had natural gas in Arlington, Texas. And I didn't do anything with it um, other than my hot water heater. That was the only thing we ever did with it. We never plumbed the fireplace for it. There was a really nice electric stove when we moved in, so we kept it. When we replaced it, I decided not to go with gas for a variety of reasons, mainly because I wasn't keeping the house. And some people are retards and think a gas stove is dangerous. So I knew I was going to be selling the house within about a year after we did that, so I went with electric because I knew it was a safe play. If they wanted gas, they could have it. If they didn't want gas, it wasn't already there. So... Why do I tell you all that? Because what I want you to know is in the summertime, uh, where the only thing we were heating with our, our gas was hot water, our gas bill would be about $11 to $14 a month. So I don't know how much savings there is there anyway. Uh, we did keep our hot water heater out in the garage is where it was. So it was pretty damn warm in there to begin with. Uh, so in colder climates in the winter, depending on where it's located, it may require a lot more energy, but if you're in a situation like I was, it may not be that much of an efficiency gain anyway. The one thing I know you can do is you can insulate your hot water heater regardless of what it is. Any controls or whatever you're going to need to access, you need to cut holes in the insulation, but simply wrapping the hot water heater in insulation is going to do a lot to hold the heat in and improve its efficiency. And that's the number one recommendation that I would I would give you. My father-in-law had, had an electric hot water heater, but it was in the garage as well and kind of tucked into a little cubby. What he did is he instead of insulating the water heater, he insulated all the walls around the water heater, and then built a front with a door where you could open the accent, insulated the door, insulated the floor, insulated the roof with just simple, um, the, the, the insulation that basically is uh, an insul insulation with a, uh, what do you call it, a radiant barrier attached to it. So you just basically, you can buy that kind of in like blocks, and that's what he used. And his electric bill is like insanely low. Uh, now, he's also a guy that keeps his thermostat in the 80s in the summer and, and, and down in the 60s in the winter because he's a, a penny pincher. Um, but I can tell you that that is one of the efficiency things he did, and those would both work. Those two techniques would both work with a gas uh, hot water heater. You have to think about the fact you've got gas burning in there, but you've got a vented source. So you want to make sure you don't uh, obstruct anything that needs to be vented or needs airflow, uh, but you could provide quite a bit of insulation without having any worries about that. That's my best advice. If anybody knows of another way to improve the efficiency, something that would control when the uh, burner actually kicks on, 
And it's probably not difficult. I've just never done it. Let us know in today's show notes. Again, today, episode 741, if you're listening to it sometime in the future. Uh, best way to find past episodes, if you know the episode number, go to the search box on the website, type the number in, hit search, and you'll probably find it pretty quick that way. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Logan in Colorado. And I was just wondering if you could recommend some books on... Uh investing, finances, you know, money management, that sort of thing. Um, I'm really trying to educate myself a little bit more in that area. And so any books or you know, websites um, you could recommend would be great. So when you're talking about like, you know, gold and silver ETAs or IRAs and you know, all that sort of stuff, I'd actually know what you're talking about. Um, but uh, thanks for all you do. Just have a good day. Well, let me just say, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Robert Kiyosaki. Not of everything the guy does, and I do think that in some of his seminars, he's basically a flim-flam guy. You know, come here and learn how to become a billionaire in real estate and stuff like that. Um, but his books are rock solid. And the first book I would recommend for anybody that wants to improve their financial IQ is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I'm going to tell you something up front that a lot of people don't know. Uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is not a true story. It is a sort of, kind of, maybe, kind of, sort of true story. Um, Robert Kiyosaki didn't really have the two dads the way that he talks about, and uh, there's no one that anybody can say, here's the rich dad, or what have you. I think there's a lot of truth uh, and anecdotal stuff from his childhood in there, um, but there's a lot of uh, literary license taken as well. I don't care. If you don't really understand money and investing and business, If you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you will come away with a much better understanding of it. Uh, I also think that you might want to consider uh, Rich Dad's Guide to Investing and uh, the Cash Flow Quadrant and the Rich Dad book on investing gold and silver. I'll link to all of those today. But what I want to tell you is that most of what I've learned in books about investing has been wrong. Um, I've learned most of what I know about investing by watching what actually happens and watching analysts say what's going to happen and watching them succeed or fail and then be determining that, like, okay, these people are someone to listen to and these people are not. And even when I say there's somebody to listen to, I always temper that with my own internal common sense. Um, I just got an email from somebody uh, from a Newsmax uh, publication uh, where it almost looked like a, like a feature on Fox News, but it was actually an advertisement. And it was a, a little infomercial, about 40 minutes of infomercial, on a book called Aftershock, a second version of Aftershock. Uh, yeah, they're trying to sell you stuff. But I think the book is probably dead solid. I'll link to that today as well. Um, I think that if you watch that video, I, I found it to be very spot on. And I think the guy is very much in sync with me that, you know, the coming crashes in 2013, it's probably 2015, 2016 when we really go down the dark hole and everything changes forever in America. Uh, it kind of lines up with when the Chinese will take over as the world leader economically, by the way. Um, but some of the, the sites that I really try to To pay attention to our market watch, which is put out by the Wall Street Journal, uh, Seeking Alpha, which is really more kind of a, a alternative source, and those two together are very uh, useful to me. Uh, Stanberry Research, who I do not like, Porter Stansberry, and I think the guy's a flim flam artist. Their newsletters are actually usually pretty good, and they usually give you some pretty good information. They're also always trying to sell you something, um, and I'm not real big on the stuff that they sell. And when I've read reviews of people that have paid for it, nobody seems to be. Very 
very happy. So you take that with a grain of salt. The best informational newsletter I get on finance and economics and where a lot of my insight comes from is called Daily Reckoning, the Daily Reckoning. Uh, let me give you a much broader way, though, to just elevate your understanding of economics and finance. You said, like, you don't understand what I'm talking about, and I, I think you said ETS. Um, it's a gold or silver ETF. An ETF can be done with anything. It means exchange-traded fund. And basically what that means is if you buy a gold ETF, the fund takes the money that goes into the fund and holds gold or holds paper gold uh, so that basically your one share should be worth roughly what an ounce of gold is, right? So they keep that that working that way. So it's like buying gold without actually taking delivery of it. It has a really big advantage uh, over physical gold in that you can trade it quickly. You, it's much easier. If you want to hold gold in an IRA, it's already the most regulated money you'll ever hold. Why do you want to put physical gold and silver there? Hold an ETF. Now, well, I've explained that to you, but what I want to tell you is everything I've just told you, you could learn in two minutes on Google if you typed in what is an ETF. So every time you hear a financial term, I want you to take a project for me, Logan. I want you to get either with your, your, you know, your PDA or your smartphone or whatever, a, a little note going in there that you keep running notes on, uh, or a little book is probably even better. You're probably more likely to do a little spiral book or something like that. You keep everywhere you go. Every single time you hear a financial term you do not understand, write it down, and the next opportunity you get, Google it, read about it, and then in your book or in your notes, write a definition that explains it in 20 words or less. I don't care how much information you have to take in to understand it, button it down to 20 words or less. And if you can do 10, that's even better. All right, so ETF, exchange traded fund, right? A fund that trades commodities based on their current value. Now, to fully understand that, you might have had to do all this reading, but if you write that down after you do this reading, your financial IQ will explode absolutely explode in three to four months. What you'll know, what you'll understand, and when you listen to Fox Money or something like that, or you read Market Watch, or you read Market Ticker, or anything like that, and you hear all of these things from people, things will start to make a lot more sense to you. I'm also going to warn any new investor this. All this crap about how much money you can make in options and stuff like that, you need to play that game on paper with not a penny spent for two years tracking every trade you would have made, how much you would have made, and how much you would have lost before you spend a dollar doing it. It sounds great, it can be great, but it's also a way to get your ever-loving ass kicked. It's a big boy's game, and it's a tough game, and it's like playing craps. It's an all-or-nothing play, usually. There's a lot of creative ways to use it that are much safer, but you need to still run those on paper before you do it. Best advice I can give you on that call, Logan, please stay hungry for this knowledge. If you'll do what I said, if you will get your little notebook and you or your note uh, application in your smartphone or whatever, and you will just, every time you hear a term I say or anybody says anywhere, write it down and go find out what it means. Call me back in 90 days and email me to let me know you called uh, and what number you called from. That way I'll go look your call up. I would love to play that call around Christmas time and see how much progress you've made. Anybody else that will do this, you can do the same thing for me. Three months, every term you don't understand, write down and learn, and let me know three months from now what a difference it's made for you and your understanding. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. I was calling to wonder what you have done to prevent forest fire damage to your home. 
I asked because I just spent three weeks at Fort Chafee, Arkansas. Every day was over 100 degrees. We set just about every range on fire doing military training. The only range we didn't set on fire was the river. Range control every day would tell us about another fire that had burned down a house or damaged a house because a lot of people have houses in the woods. I was wondering what efforts you take to mitigate that danger. Thank you very much. Well, it's something we actually have a long way to go with. I can tell you some of the things that we did. During the time of the year where it was really, really dry, uh, the area directly around the house, I would say out to about 40 yards in all directions, um, including many of the trees we didn't really care that much about. We're not even sure we're going to let them stay. We watered, and we watered heavily to keep the vegetation uh, as moist and lush as possible. Another thing I do, when I go out on my property and I walk my property, if I see a tree that has died, It's a dead tree, but it's standing. It gets cut down. If it's good for firewood, fine, I can take it. If not, it gets cut down and it can lay on the ground and pile leaves up over and let it rot and let it go back to the soil and take part of the fungal decomposition. Here's why. Wood on the ground very quickly degrades into a rotted wood that it, it, it generally holds a lot of moisture and um, it will burn, but it doesn't burn well. Nobody, If you've ever put a piece of rotted log on a fire, you know it burns slow and smoky. When you got hardwood that's seasoned well uh, and nice and dry and a match, and it, you know, it gets lit, once it goes up, it burns like crazy. That standing dead wood is the biggest way that fires get spread once they get well established. Think about this. You have, let's say, a 40 or 50 foot tall tree that's dead. And enough fire eventually takes it over. It doesn't scorch the outside like it does with a live tree. It really takes over and it really starts burning. And it goes up. And that thing goes up and eventually gets to the point where its structure is weakened and it falls in some direction. When it falls, it breaks into literally thousands of little hot coals that are perfect for starting new mini fires that turn into new big fires. So they're a great way to spread fire. The other thing is hardwoods don't burn very well when they're alive. Uh, conifers burn much quicker when they're alive. So I try to keep the conifer population down on my property because I know they'll dry out and they'll go up quicker. So those are some things. We definitely have breaks around the home uh, where fire can't get in. Uh, or fire, you know, it's, it takes more work for fire to get across those breaks. Uh, we're putting in some ponds and those are some additional, you know, it's water that can be used. It's also, you know, fire doesn't come across the pond very well. There's a lot of different things that you can do, um, but there is always the risk that you're going to lose out in a real forest fire. Um, smaller fires that can be fought are a lot easier to deal with than these firestorms that we're dealing with right now. So on top of all of the things you can do to try to avoid it, you have to be prepared to go. You have to know what you're going to take. This is one of your bug-out scenarios. And you got to have damn good insurance to cover everything you own in the event of a fire. Some of the things you may not be able to take with you, you want to protect them in a way where they're going to survive. So that's usually underground structure is the best way to do that. There are limits to what you can do. I did talk to Marjorie recently. A lot of you guys have been asking about her. Marjorie from Backyard Food Production down uh, south of Austin, sort of kind of in the Bastrop area where they're having uh, the fires right now. And I asked her, are you guys, uh, you know, do you guys have any fires in your area? And she said, basically all around us but not here yet. Uh, we're all taking turns standing watch and staying in touch with each other in the community and being ready to go if we have to. And she said, as prepared as we think we are, When we realize we'll have to leave and how much we'll have to leave behind, 
and the emotional attachment we have, then we realize we're really not prepared to leave emotionally, and we needed to do more thinking about this before we were forced to. So having a good evacuation plan is a good way to go as well. There's actually a lot of things in the permaculture world when it comes to fire prevention, uh, and it's one of like the things on my list to go to next to learn more about. As I'm working through this PDC uh, with Lawton and Mullison, there are some uh, chapters on that, but they're later in it. I'm only up to like this five on this thing now. It's incredibly long and incredibly insightful. Um, if you ever buy it, I will tell you this. There's sometimes when Mullison's lecturing, you're just like, oh my God, dude, tell us about permaculture. Because he goes on and on with these stories and anecdotes and places that he's been, and it's interesting stuff, but um, and there's times where I end, I end up fast-forwarding through him. Lawton, I like his lectures a lot better. They're more concrete and direct. Uh, uh, just a side note there. But those are some basic things you can do. Fire breaks, keeping the property well irrigated around you, uh, removing standing deadwood. I, I cannot tell you how important that is. A lot of the freaking problems we have with forest fires on our national land today would be alleviated if they would go back to the practice of letting people go in there to harvest wood uh, that's dead, firewood. Uh, lying dead wood is bad, too, for a while. The quicker it decomposes, the better. Some areas are more dry and arid than others. In the eastern woods, when you put wood on the ground, um, it starts to go back to the earth really, really quick. The moist uh, periods, uh, the, you know, the winter and the spring really take their toll fast in a single season on that stuff that's on the ground. I would definitely harvest as much for firewood as you can, but there's times when you have a really big tree and you can't get it all out. It's too far. You don't have a logging road or whatever. Um, but if we would let people again get permits to go into our national and state forests and cut dead trees without worrying, oh, they might cut a live tree. Yeah, you retard. They might, but they probably won't because most people know what a dead tree is. And the whole advantage to somebody cutting dead wood is it's already partially to fully seasoned. Uh, but get that standing dead wood out of there. That is, if you think about a fire around a standing piece of dead wood, it's a perfect environment airflow-wise, uh, combustion-wise, fuel-wise. Everything is perfect. And just think about what happens when that thing falls down and how much spread it can do. Think about if you had uh, a couple hundred tons of charcoal, like when it's glowing red in your grill, and you started shoveling it into a forest, what it would do. When that standing deadwood falls, that's exactly what's happening. Let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, Brent up here in Prince Edward Island. Question on canners. It'll be quick. Two questions. Number one, I've ordered the uh, All-American 915. Can I use it as a pressure cooker? Second question, what are your thoughts on hamburger in a pressure canner? Cook first or pack raw and process? Thanks again. Bye. Um, on your first question, there are people that will tell you that a pressure canner is for pressure canning and a pressure cooking is for pressure cooking, and you can't do both with one or the other. The reality is there are some very low-end pressure cookers that should not be used for canning. Anything that's good enough to use for canning, you can cook in. Uh, your All-American is the best you can get, and it's marketed as a cooker canner. It is a dual-function device, and there's no reason you can't pressure cook in an All-American pressure cooker canner. My grandmother, uh, who fed us for years and years and years and years, had an old pressure canner uh, cooker uh, from All-American. Very, very old. Uh, my dad still has it and won't give it to me, made me buy my own. Even though he doesn't use it, he just wants to keep it. Um, and we cooked in it all the time. And we would even sometimes pressure cook something halfway to tenderize it and then cook it another method. So no reason you can't do both. On raw pack or cooking ground meat before canning it, I have always cooked it 
And I've never really been big on canning ground beef just as plain old beef. It's always with something in mind. Uh, I used to make, and I, I haven't made it for a long time. I really should make it again. My grandmother called it barbecue. Uh, she was a Yankee. Uh, you know, and it wasn't anything like you would recognize as barbecue, but it was kind of this like uh, sweet chili uh, meat uh, made with uh, with peppers and onions and, and other things uh, with ground beef, and that was really really good. And maybe I could come up with a version that's more like what we would call barbecue in the South. And of course, we know that barbecue is a sauce uh, that you put on meat, not when you cook on the grill down here, you folks. And My old state of Pennsylvania, I think you're barbecuing, and barbecue is not a verb. Anyway, um, but uh, I have always cooked first, and I usually don't do it by itself. In fact, I don't think I ever have. If I was going to do it, I probably would cook it, but that's just kind of ingrained in me. I'll tell you this. If you take raw meat, and you put it in a jar, and you leave about an inch of headspace, and you pressure can it for about an hour and a half, which is the recommended length for doing raw meat. I don't care if it's ground, cubed, or whole. There ain't nothing in there that's going to hurt you after an hour and a half in a pressure canner. Um, follow a recipe. There's plenty of them out there. Uh, there's an issue here that people think about, and that is that uh, generally with ground meat, There are certain things that can be on the outside of a steak, and that's why you can cook it nice and bloody red, and it's still good because the outside was the only place it was exposed to the air and could have been contaminated. When we grind it, it goes all the way through there, and that's why we want to fully cook most ground beef. Um, and I'll tell you that when you, that's true, but when you stick it in a pressure canner for 90 minutes, it's fully freaking cooked. Um, there ain't nothing that can survive in there. That's why it's such an effective method of preserving meat. So you can do either one you want. Um, I've always cooked ground meat before canning it. Love to hear from you guys in the comments section about this. Those of you that do things with canning ground meat, whether you do things more like me where you're making kind of like a something similar to manwich or taco seasoned meat or something like that, or are you doing more like a uh, just a straight-up canned beef to do whatever you want with. And there does seem to be some advantages in that. One thing about ground beef, once you've canned it, the texture is much softer. It's not going to taste like something fresh out of, uh, you know, from the butcher today that you go out and you, you cook up. It's going to be a lot softer. That's why it's good in things like spaghetti sauces is another thing that we've done a lot with. Um, I even like to, when I do spaghetti sauces, do it with, uh, you get Italian sausage. Uh, and cook that up. And if you can't get it uh, without cases, you just cut the cases off it and crumble it up and, and make a, a spaghetti sauce out of that using basil from the garden and garlic from the garden and tomatoes from the garden. I mean, it's just a, a great way to do things. But love to hear what you guys are doing with canned beef. I say you do either one. And if you're not sure, do both and determine which one you like the results of better. But you're not going to be harmed by doing it if you're concerned about that. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Chris in Midland, Texas again. We've been getting hammered by a pretty bad drought here in Texas overall, and here in Midland we've received less than an inch of rain over the last year. So I'm going to put in a drip irrigation system. I was looking through your uh, different shows that you've done in the past, and I didn't see anything specifically related to drip irrigation. I'd love to hear you do a show on it because there's a, a plethora of, of just data but not a lot of good information on how to do drip irrigation and what works best and It seems like there's a there's a lot of uh, variations depending on soil types and how often and how many times and for different plants. So, anyway, uh, if you could do that show, that'd be awesome. Uh, thanks for the show. Bye. Well, it's a good question, and it's probably a great topic for a show. And when I had um, 
I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy from Rainsaucers.com on, he mentioned a company called Drip Tech and another one called Catch a Drip. And Catch a Drip is more of a you know product you can buy. I, the, the Drip Tech looked really cool, but apparently they're just giving it away to people in the third world and they won't sell it to me. I haven't heard back from them. I've inquired about it, but the Catch a Drip stuff looks pretty cool. So maybe they're a good subject matter expert to get on to do a show about, or anybody else out there that's really familiar with drip irrigation and can break it down to a simple, easy-to-understand level for people in an audio format would like to be a guest, go by the Survival Podcast, click on Guest Survey, and we'll try to get in touch with you. Side note on that, we got a lot of people right now that we're going to be getting in touch with when we get back from Denver. Uh, there's a pretty good-sized waiting list, I think, of, of people that Dorothy's working on getting scheduled. We've been doing a lot of interviews lately. We're amazed at how many people want to be on the show. So if you're requesting to be a guest on the show right now, you're usually three to four weeks out from being scheduled uh, for a show, just just so you know that. Um, but on drip irrigation, it's really not as complicated as a lot of people make it sound. And a lot of things, this is true. The best way to do it is to just start getting the stuff you think you need and putting it together and evaluating it, and go as far as you can with a single leg of your system, and when it stops performing the way you want it to, you need a second leg. Uh, and it, it, the equipment is actually very inexpensive, and it's really easy to work with. And you can kind of build your system all on a manual basis, and then you can automate it down the road. Um, but even if it's a manual system, you have to go out and turn on and, and flip a couple valves here and there uh, for a couple hours a day. It's a lot easier than carrying a garden hose around. Uh, and it is very, very effective and very, very efficient. And it can be combined things like rain, with rain barrels and other, other substances like that. So it's really not that hard. And I've seen people really simplify it where they just take, you know, like half inch PVC pipe and drill holes in it, uh, and build a system out of that. And it's, and I've seen that actually work quite well, but it probably makes sense to use the proper stuff, uh, uh, a lot, a lot more than to, to do the improvising. It's going to end up costing you less than the long run. Um, but I will try to get a subject matter expert on to do a show because I think it would be better a better show if I got someone that's really familiar with it on. But I'll also give you a resource you can watch today. It's by an Aussie, uh, an Australian, and it's called Backyard Permaculture. It's on Google Video. Um, I think Google Video is going to be taken down soon, and I am trying to strip the damn thing off, and I'm having headaches trying to strip it off because I want to put it up on uh, YouTube before Google Video goes away. My understanding is Google Video is soon going to go away because they, you know, they bought YouTube and everybody uses YouTube, but I haven't found it on YouTube, the full version of it. I'll give you a link to it today. Uh, since this is important to you, I would watch it. It's, there's a segment of about 20, maybe, maybe 10 minutes on drip irrigation that's very, very informative. The whole thing's worth watching. I've mentioned it before, but if you're concerned with drip irrigation, man, there's some great advice and exactly how to lay out your drip irrigation system. Uh, you'll hear them things things like check with your council and stuff like that. I have a lot more regs down there than we do, uh, but the nuts and bolts advice. And I think you'll find that most places that sell the material, other than the giant box stores, probably have a pretty good expert to help you out uh, as well in what you're trying to put together. Draw a diagram of what you want to irrigate when you go to buy your supplies. Uh, put some scale to it, put some distances and measurements, and uh, know things like your flow rate, and you will get a lot of help from at least informed consultants. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is J.D. in Ohio. I want to thank you for a great show. With my limited time available to do so, TSP and Jason Akers at the Self-Sufficient Gardener are the two podcasts I focus on, especially for gardening. My question is, I, under I understand and agree with you the tenant, five tenants are survival, but I think there may be a sixth one, health and sanitation. 
seems that people I've talked to that have served overseas or have done Christian missions have stated that basic sanitation and health care are huge ongoing issues, especially in disaster-related scenarios. Also, a quick comment. I'm into my second year of my journey of self-sufficiency, but my wife has always been on the periphery. However, she's been paying more attention to the global unrest, national debt, and food prices. Two weeks ago, we watched the Nat Geo special Doomsday Preppers, and she asked a lot of questions. Now she's fully on board, and I'm able to use the information I've gleaned from your show to help us out. Thanks again. Bye. Yeah, I like that. I might even, if I finally ever publish my book, rip it off from you, and uh, I'll give you credit, of course. But make it a sixth one. You know the thing about the five, uh, the five, the five survival needs is what I call them. Uh, they're they're taken directly from wilderness survival, and in wilderness survival, you're kind of out there alone, and it's not a lot of people together. And sanitation is an issue, but it's not a big issue. You know, if you drop a deuce, you bury it, and if you take a leak, it's not really a big deal, and you're probably going to be moving or not going to be somewhere for very long. So it's not given the level of scrutiny that it needs to be for civilized society. If you think about a family of four, uh, even if they're not taking any material in, the amount of waste that they produce uh, in, in human form and in other form is quite significant. Um, so definitely. Now, I do think it's somewhat covered. If we're going to have clean, fresh water, we have to have a clean environment for that clean, fresh water to exist in. Um, if we're going to have shelter, we have to keep our shelter squared away. Uh, if we're going to have security, there's a, a certain amount of, of cleanliness that goes along with security. So I think that it, it's something that, that people generally do think about, but they don't classify it off all by itself. Uh, if we ever end up in a long-term situation with things like the sewers not running, it will become a problem quick, and garbage trucks not running. The garbage trucks is not as big a problem as you think it is. If the garbage trucks aren't running, then the systems of support are probably not running, and people are going to throw a lot less away in that environment. But I do think that some of the basic things that we can all do to reduce the, the problem before it is a problem is things like composting and even setting up. I haven't done it this year, but next year when we get chickens, and yes, my loving wife in the other room that can hear me, we're going to get some chickens uh, in, in the spring. Um, setting up, you know, black soldier fly uh, is a great uh, black soldier fly operation is a great way to dispose of even the the waste that you generally wouldn't put in the compost heap, like meats and things like that. And they're a great protein source, so that takes away a big part of it. If you live off grid and you're using a septic system, that solves a lot of your problems. And maybe because our plan was always to come here and now we live here and we have that, we don't think about it as much. Everything's gravity fed. There's no electricity that goes into flushing our toilets other than uh, the electricity to run the well pump, and we have redundancy for that. So it's something I don't think about as much. And then it's only two people, and we have five acres to work with, and we could bury very deuces for as long as we had to, if we had to. But in a suburban situation, it is a much more critical issue. And it's probably something we need to take a, a deeper look at in the future on the show. But sanitation and health, I like it. And uh, I think I will make it a, the, the sixth survival need, with your blessing, of course, as the person that came up with it. And with that, let's go ahead and take yet another call. Hey, Jack, this is John in West Virginia once again. Uh, I was I was listening to an episode here the other day talking about the guy stealing the okra plants, thinking it was marijuana. My question for you is, what are your uh, opinions on marijuana and the marijuana laws? I just uh, like to get your opinion. Uh, 
my opinion is it should be legalized, but my work does not allow it, so I must not partake. But appreciate it, man. I'd like to hear your info. Later, bro. Uh, it's not really a survival topic, but you know I talk a lot about my political beliefs, so it's a fair question. And if somebody was going to ask it, I, John from West Virginia, uh, what a great guy to get the question from. Uh, I have quite a few different ways that I look at this issue. Let's start out with uh, the first one. Regardless of anything I'm about to tell you, I do not now smoke marijuana, and I have no plans to smoke marijuana in the future. And if it was completely legal and growing wild in my backyard, I still wouldn't smoke it because I don't think it's a good thing to do uh, from a health standpoint unless you have a specific illness that's addressed by it, and I'll get to that in a minute. However, as a libertarian, I don't believe that prohibition is a good idea. Uh, I fall very much in line with Ron Paul's thoughts on that, and I think at the very least that it's something that should be regulated by the states, not the federal government. I believe it's become nothing but a great big money grab for the federal government. I think law enforcement uh, efforts are completely and totally wasted with the enforcement of a law on a drug that is certainly no more harmful to anybody uh, than, than I believe, honestly, alcohol is. And I actually believe that tobacco uh, in the form of cigarettes is more addictive and more health-damaging than marijuana. And if you are a smoker of, of tobacco and you highly oppose uh, marijuana, you really need to think about that. And I'm not saying to go out and start smoking marijuana. I'm saying maybe you need to stop smoking cigarettes. If you think there's a health risk from marijuana, I'm telling you there's an equal or greater health risk from tobacco. Nobody has to agree with me on this, by the way. And my opinion on this isn't going to change any policy anywhere. So if you're that upset about it, uh, don't be because it's not really going to change anything. Um, I do think on the medical marijuana issue, every time this subject comes up, I, I, I call these people puritanical right-wing ass clowns, uh, like Sean Hannity and the others that are in this, this, this world, Rush Limbaugh. They won't even listen, blah, 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 blah. They put their fingers in their ears. I don't want to hear it. Blah. Well, I'll tell you what. There are people with certain illnesses that this actually allows to eat food. And nothing else works for them. And to say that that can't be medically prescribed is not just, I don't just disagree with it. I think it's freaking sinful. And I think anybody that's blocking it should be kicked into the nads, kicked into the nads until they agree to let somebody that's dying, uh, that actually makes their dying more comfortable. Because the same person apparently has no problem with the fact that we give Ritalin to our children. It's meth and freaking phetamine. Now, I think if you ask the average person, which drug do you find is worse for people to be on, marijuana or methamphetamine, 99% of people will go, meth. But then we give that to our kids and we tell a dying cancer patient, you can't have marijuana. That's freaking stupid. So when I see medical marijuana laws passed, it makes me happy. There's another side to this altogether, though. Uh, there's an old saying in the, the hemp industry, rope, not dope. There are two types of hemp plant. Uh, there's actually many, many subspecies and, and varieties and things like that, but there's two main. And one is what you would call a rope-quality hemp. Rope-quality hemp is not marijuana. And even if we can't agree that we should legalize marijuana or come up with some way that at least people that medically need it can have it, when they can have opium, uh, when they can have heroin, basically there are pharmaceutical drugs that are basically heroin, when they can have, you know, uh, uh, meth, but then they can't have, that's just dumb. It's just freaking stupid, but fine. Um, on the rope not dope thing, the, the dumbest law in the United States that I know of that affects agricultural negatively is it's illegal to grow hemp in the United States. Rope not dope. Let me tell you something about these hemp plants. If you went out and gathered up as much as of it you could and smoked it till you were green, uh, you wouldn't get high. 
you get a headache, but you're not going to get high. It is not dope. And because it looks like conventional marijuana, it was made illegal. It is one of the greatest plants we could ever grow for biofuel. The seed of the plant is highly nutritious and one of the greatest uh, protein sources out there. Uh, with with, with uh, quinoa and amaranth, it's the only uh, seed plant that really is a full, complete protein. and It's actually better than both of them. It will grow anywhere. It grows in extreme densities. Uh, you almost can't kill it. Uh, it makes great materials. It was originally one of the plants that was going to be used to make biofuels for the auto industry. Uh, it can, there's so many things that can be done with it. It is a wonder plant, and it is not a drug. Let me say this again. It is not a drug. And the, the right-wing establishment and left-wing establishment people that oppose legalizing hemp, okay, not marijuana, hemp, are moronic idiots And there are farmers in like North Dakota and other states that border the Canadian border that can literally look across the border and look at Canadian farmers growing hemp. There's no bigger problem with marijuana in Canada than there is in the United States. Hemp will not contribute to the problem. So at a minimum, the laws banning agricultural hemp should have been done away. They should have never been passed. They were they was lumped in with marijuana because there were people in the oil industry that didn't want it to be a plant. Because if you want biofuel, I'm telling you, hemp is the way to go. It can be grown anywhere, and it has a great yield. And it also has a good food value, and there's many other byproducts that come from it. On the marijuana law, those of you who go, oh, Jack is okay with people smoking marijuana. I'm a libertarian, duh. Which means, even if I don't agree with something, it's not my business what you do as long as, one, you don't violate my rights or the rights of other people, and two, when you screw up your life, I don't have to pay for it. So I'm actually not for any prohibitions whatsoever. I am for regulation and enforcement of a regulation, and if, if they're going to tax something, taxing dope is the way to go. And uh, I'll also tell you this. Most of the laws that we have on drugs have caused more harm than they've done good. Think about this. Today, if you have nasal congestion, one of the best over-the-counter medications you could have taken was Actifed. Not Sudafed, Actifed. Actifed had Sudafedrine in it and another uh, anti, anti, uh, antihistamine or decongestion or something like that. that I, it, it ends with HCI. It's something HCI. I can't find it in anything else. Actifed was the only brand that made it, period, end of story, the only one you could get. I get allergies on rare occasions. When I do, though, they suck. And this stuff works like that. Sudafed, which you can still get if you go to the window and sign for it and whatever, um, you know, uh, it does not work as well as this other thing with this HCI stuff in it. Um, it's the only thing that worked for me. And it's the only thing that worked for thousands and thousands, if not millions of Americans. And it worked better than anything else. Because of the methamphetamine enforcement, they made Sudafed very hard to buy. Okay? Now, all that's done is prevent me from getting Actifed. That's all that it's done uh, from a standpoint of, of lowering the amount of speed available in the marketplace. What it also did, though, it had the desired effect in the United States. It's very difficult to get uh, pseudofedrine in large quantities to cook your speed with anymore, so the meth labs in the United States are in deep... They're still here, far, far less of them. But the people that were cooking meth in the United States were primarily manufacturers slash distributors. All they did was go into the distribution business. They outsourced the production to Mexico, and now all of the money for the meth that goes to Mexico 
is now being used to build the Mexican cartels, and 90% of the problems we have with the violence on the border are because they're well-funded thugs, and they're well-funded off the speed they're selling us because they passed a law that Jack can't get active fed. Great job, government. Thank you so much for that. I feel so much safer now. You've destroyed my southern border. You've enriched the drug trade in Mexico beyond their wildest beliefs, and I can't get active fed. Thank you, Mr. Government. This is what drug prohibitions lead. Now let me end with one final thought on this subject. Think of the children, please. Think of the children. You hear all this nonsense from your government that says, well, we have to have drug laws because we have to keep drugs out of our schools. And that sounds good, but it's freaking stupid. And any politician that says it should be set in front of a big, giant guy, way bigger than me, and he should smack the shit out of him for saying something stupid like that. If you don't agree with me, here's why. We have a, uh, an institution in the United States of America called the prison system. Inside prisons, there are walls, gates, and security all around. There are guards. There's 24-7 watch. Everything that goes in the prison and comes out of the prison is inspected, and there isn't a prison in America without drugs inside it. Not one. If your government cannot keep drugs out of our prisons. They are lying to your face and they know it when they say that they can use law to keep drugs out of our schools. I'll tell you whose responsibility it is to keep drugs out of the hands and out of the bodies of our children, parents. And if you're worried about it, you stay involved and you control your kids and you won't have to worry about it. And when they're an adult, they're going to have to make an informed decision on their own. So you best goddamn educate them the best that you possibly can now so that when they're free to make that choice, they're able to make the right choice based on real information, not fear, uncertainty, and doubt that they completely doubt from the establishment. They'll trust you if you talk to them honestly about the subject. So it's your responsibility, not your government's responsibility, to keep drugs out of your, your children's hands and bodies. And let me tell you something. You can do it, and your government can not do it. It is an impossibility that any person today that's not taking drugs in the school system is doing it because of government. They're doing it because of parenting and they're doing it because of quality teachers and quality uh, school administration. Uh, and there's a little bit of government there, but it's really the individual, not the government apparatus. It's not the law because it's very profitable to sell drugs to our kids. You want to fix the problem? Make drugs legal with regulation and make people that have to get basically a permit to use drugs that signs away their ability to get the state to provide them support as long as they're on drugs, tax the shit out of it, solve our debt problem, and pass a law that if you sell drugs to a minor, you go to jail, directly to jail, do not pass go for a minimum of 25 years. There'll be no money in it and big penalties. Right now there's lots of money and relatively small penalties for first-time offenders. And they're very smart about how they defer risk. Take away the profit and the problem dies. That's my thoughts on the drug thing as a whole. But even if you don't agree with me on drugs as a whole, the laws against marijuana in this country are freaking stupid. They're absolutely freaking stupid. Number one, they do nothing to control the problem. There's plenty of people smoking pot. Number two, there's plenty of pot available. And number three, our police officers are busy enforcing a law that doesn't really affect you or me. Because you've never read this in the newspaper. Man smokes three joints, runs down the street, runs over 52 children, goes apeshit, grabs AK-47, and breaks into a barroom and kills a bunch of people. Or anything like that, to one extreme or the other. You never hear the guy high on pot going out and causing trouble. 
you hear it more about alcohol than, than marijuana. And that's just facts. That's just the facts. So even though I am not a drug user and I do not wish to be a drug user, if you want to be stupid, as long as I don't have to pay for it, fine. And as far as it leads to other crime, great. When they commit other crimes, arrest them and put them in jail. If you stop putting people in jail for possession, then you'll be lots of room for people that actually violate the rights of others. That's the best I can do. Sorry for the rant at the end, but if you want to know how I think, you know what it is. I will tell you how I think. Remember, you don't have to agree with me on this, and if you guys start arguing and yelling and calling each other names in the comments of today's show notes over this, I will close the comments. Be civil in your debates. I will not allow anybody to insult anybody else on my blog or in my forum. Just a reminder. And with that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.